Seven. We haven't finished the whole chapter yet. Um, I also want to get through as much of chapter 8 as we can today, um, so we have a good bit of ground to cover. Um, but first, before we do any of that, I would like to um, draw your attention to something in chapter 4. Let's backtrack just ever so slightly, because today is Transfiguration Sunday. Um, it's fitting that our uh, church takes on a new aesthetic on this day of all days. Uh, it's kind of fitting. So, y'all will get it in a minute. All right, Isaiah chapter 4. So this is talking about after the remnant have been brought home, right? We've been following the, the, uh, the pattern of the remnant throughout these, what, seven or so chapters. Verses five through six of chapter four. Um, I just want to point this out real quick. And then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth or tabernacle for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So um, do you see any connection between that and the Mount of Transfiguration? Yeah. The cloud, the fire, and the booths stand out to me. Yeah. Especially just Peter's comment about building tents. Yeah. The the booths. Um. So in in the Mount of Transfiguration story, uh, Peter wants to build multiple booths, but this says very clearly there's there's one. There will be a booth, a tabernacle, and I think that is why. I think if you ask, like, what exactly did Peter say that was wrong? That was it right there. That, that's it. Um, he was putting Christ and the prophets on the same level, saying that there should be a booth for each of them, right? But, but there's one tabernacle. There's one dwelling place where God and man encounter each other, and that place is the person of Christ. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Um, I just want to point this out. I, this is, I don't want to belabor the point or like read too much into it, but it's worth pointing out that Moses's miracles tend to be associated with water and Elijah's miracles tend to be associated with fire. So you kind of see the two pillars in the two pillars of the Jewish tradition. You know, these two great prophets. Um, anyway, I don't want to belabor that, but the, the story of God leading his people through the pillar of storm and the pillar of fire, um, 
that sort of is echoed throughout the story of the Old Testament. And you see that in people like Moses and Elijah. They sort of are the pillars of the Jewish faith. Um, but they're not the booths. They're not the tabernacles. They are not to be worshipped is what that means. Um, uh, true worship belongs only to Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of these things come together. And it says very clearly in Jude, I believe it's in verse 5, that it's Christ himself who guided Israel out of the land of Egypt. Um, so yeah, there we go. Any, any further thoughts on that? Just a little preparation for Transfiguration Sunday. Yeah. So back to Isaiah 7. The sign of the male child, the seed, is a sign of both hope and doom. We talked about that last week. Um, It is an inevitable sign. It's as high as heaven and as deep as the grave. And for some, it's a sign of salvation. For others, it's a sign of their destruction. Um, And I want to read something real quick from... Now bear with me here. This is from uh, a book called First Enoch. Um... I do not care whether this is uh, whether what, what I'm about to read is historical fact. What I'm interested in is the fact that they understand that the promise of the seed is a promise of both hope and doom. Promise of hope and doom. Both. That's the sign of Emmanuel. So that think, the, the point of me reading this is to show that as the people are expecting the Messiah, they understand that it's, it's both a sign of hope and a sign that the old world is passing away and that uh, there's something great and terrible about the coming of, of, um, of the child of promise. So this is a story about Noah um, taken from the Jewish tradition probably a couple hundred years before the arrival of the Messiah. So you can see that the, um, the Jewish scribes are, are thinking about this stuff and they're wrestling with it and they're trying to understand, well, what does it mean to be at the end of the age? Um, all right, so this is, a, this is a story based on the, the great patriarchs Noah and his fathers. And Methuselah comes to his father and says, because of a great matter I've come to you, and because of a disturbing vision have I come near. And now hear me, my father, for a child has been born to my son Lamech, whose form and type are not like the type of a man. His color is whiter than snow. The hair of his head is whiter than wool, and his eyes are like the rays of the sun. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) He opened his eyes and made the whole house bright. And he was taken from the hand of his midwife, and he opened his mouth and blessed the Lord of heaven. It's like those um, old Catholic or Orthodox stained glass windows 
where you see the the child, but he looks like a man. Yeah. Like it's like in child size, but he's able to talk. Yeah. And he opened his mouth and blessed the Lord of heaven. And I, Enoch, answered and said to him, the Lord will do new things on earth. Call his name Noah, for he will be a remnant for you. And he and his sons will be saved from the destruction which is coming on the earth because of all the sin and all the iniquity which will be committed on the earth in his days. Okay, so again, the point of me reading that is to show how throughout the Old Testament, throughout Jewish tradition, and especially leading up to the arrival of the Messiah, they understood that the coming of the seed, the arrival of Emmanuel, is both a great and terrible thing, right? And so the child of promise being born is not just a happy event, right? It means that a lot of people are going to die. And it means that there's going to be an exile, which Christ himself will take part in, right? He's going to go down to Egypt. He will be a child of the exile. It says, we read this uh, in Isaiah 7, before the child even is old enough to know right from wrong, he's going to be a nomad. He's going to be an exiled um, a child of promise, but an exiled child of promise. Well, is it not all the judgment? Judgment. judgment. Yes, judgment. Yes, right, right. And in the case of, in the, case of um, the people of uh, Ephraim or Israel, um, uh, exile is the judgment. You know, being exiled is, is God's judgment on them. Thoughts? Yeah. Just a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is what Jesus said in the New Testament, not even come to bring peace, but a sword? Yeah. Does that sort of relate here? I, absolutely, it does. Doom here, peace over here. Absolutely. That just came to my mind. Yeah. Um, and, the, and, the, and the thing is, um, right now the sword is for God's people. You know, we are sojourners. In a foreign land, says First Peter, um, we are persecuted. We just read the Beatitudes. Blessed are the persecuted. Um, the sword right now is for us. It won't always be that way, but for right now, um, you know, as God's people, as the new Israel, this is the part of uh, Israel's story that we're in right now. You know, and in as much as we are in Christ, we take part in. Um, his exile, his suffering that was started all the way back at his birth, you know, when he and the Holy Family were hiding in Egypt. So, yeah. Anything else? I'm just thinking about, I think the, new, I think the King James presents it as the great and terrible day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I know great, obviously, not just being good, there's a lot of understanding of the word great, but it is this idea of an awesome and yet. Day yeah. Regarding the day of the Lord, that both possibly in the incarnation and in the second advent as well. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah he's good. Along with the doom and hope and doom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the sword, I guess, faces towards his people right now because of the suffering endured by them. But one day it'll turn towards God's enemies, you know, and judgment will be below. Yeah. And I think of all the psalms that I guess haven't really been fulfilled yet. Because you know that one psalm was fulfilled when Jesus died. Like he quoted it, and now we understand that that's what that psalm is about. 
And there are plenty of songs about God's justice and about God's judgment against his enemies. And I think about those songs when I think about when the day that, you know, the terrible part of Christ's coming when he will deal with all his enemies. So <coughs> the sword, sword uh, will change its target eventually. <laughs> Many a person throughout history has um, misused that verse. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Many a crusade has been fought using that verse. And so that's kind of what I'm guarding against here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you see in the general you know, world culture, there are tons and tons of people who will give God lip service. But if you mention Jesus, then the knives come out. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and the, the king hasn't ridden out to battle yet, so uh, you know the idea of a crusade uh, doesn't work as well. Because I mean, the king leads in battle or should be leading in battle. Uh, and anyway, that, that's just my, yeah. That was a thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the white horse hasn't been ridden. Yes, yet. right. Yes. Yeah. There's a reason why he came in on the foal of the donkey. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the animal yeah. of peace. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the white horse is coming. Peace and also simplicity. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 It's it's, it's royal animal. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and to your point about Christ being naturally divisive, just you don't have to make him any more divisive. He's already divisive enough. Um, we're we're uh, we're gonna we're gonna see we're gonna see in chapter eight this morning about the stumbling stone, mm -hmm. and this stone is is it's a um, it's like a filter. It filters people one way or another. For some, it's a stone of offense and a stone of stumbling. And for others, it's a stone of salvation. So we'll see this, we'll see this repeated in different images as Isaiah is trying to get this across. So um, we'll get to that. All right, so bringing us up to speed from where we left off um, last week, talking about um, the coming of Emmanuel. Um, Isaiah says the seed will be called Emmanuel meaning God with us. This is one of the most important verses in all of the scriptures because the most important concern in the scriptures is for God to dwell with his people. This is the clearest purpose of mankind and the overarching intention of God. But as we have seen, the arrival of God's presence is not necessarily a promise of hope and joy. Isaiah's promise to Emmanuel is a response to King Ahaz's false religious piety the same false piety that Isaiah re rebuked in chapter 1. Yahweh offers Ahaz any kind of sign, if only Ahaz will admit his doubt and fear. Ahaz refuses the path of humility, and so Yahweh promises Emmanuel. Like Noah and Moses, Emmanuel is marked by a strange arrival. The seed will emerge from a virgin or uncultivated source. He will not grow up in stable settlement, where land is tended and cultured, but will grow up in wandering and exile. This is a prophecy of the seed in Egypt, preserved for new exodus. For all contained within the seed, this is a promise of hope and renewal. For Ahaz, whose false piety will not be contained within the seed, this is indeed a disturbing vision. As the seed or word incarnate, Christ encompasses both the highest and the lowest, at the lowest, Christ takes on flesh to the point of inhabiting Sheol. At the highest, Christ 
is the fullness of God and is exalted to ultimate glory. In this way, the giving of Emmanuel is the very kind of sign Yahweh demanded that Ahaz asked for. Emmanuel is as high as heaven and as low as the grave. This union of the high and the low we ritually experience in the Eucharist, which is a kind of altar coal to the lips. It is a cleansing for those who humble themselves. For those who take it in pride, it is their destruction. Likewise, the sign of Emmanuel is for Isaiah and for those who humble themselves a sign of hope. But for those who are consumed by pride, his advent or arrival is their ruin. The presence of God spans both heaven and hell. It is an inevitability realized in the advent of Emmanuel. Where shall I flee from your presence? The psalmist asks from Psalm 139. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. This is the sign of Emmanuel. Any thoughts before we move on to the verses we haven't gotten to yet? I will say this God has been very patient to give the earth and its people the opportunity to acknowledge him. He's been very patient. The question you often hear is why why does God allow people to suffer? The real question is why why does he not just wipe us all out? Be done with it, kind of like a a, a, re, a re, uh, Noah's Ark. <laughs> well, how long did it take for the Ark to be built? Yeah. You know, that's a lot of witness right there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that God was very patient at that point. You know. Yeah. And I oftentimes wonder, you know, there are people that might have heard Noah speak, but they just didn't respond. As soon as the rain starts, it starts flooding. It's too late for them to get into to the ark, but maybe it's not too late for them to repent. There's this uh, there's this thing about the ark with the door being closed, and I think it says, if I remember correctly, I think it says that it's God who closes the door. That's significant because. I imagine Noah and his family wanted to let people in the ark once the screaming started. Yeah. I'm sure you could hear it. There's a, this, for those of you who've seen the Noah movie, like they're sitting in the ark in the dark and you can hear the screaming outside. Um, but it's too late. They can't get in. The, the door is closed. They, they can't open it. So, all right. So, and Christ says that uh, these are the days of Noah. Yeah. In that day, so we're in chapter 7, verse 18. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rock and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river. And he explains... The symbolism here with the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is the razor. And he will shave the head and the hair of the feet and will sweep away the beard also. Feet is uh, euphemistic here. We're, we're talking about slavery. The people are going into slavery. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, 
He will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bows and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. This is a reversal of Eden. Well, it's the curse playing out. As the curse plays out, uh, God takes away the head. There's no one left to till the land, and it just becomes overgrown with thorns and thistles. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. So the land of Canaan, the land of promise, will no longer, in these days of judgment, will no longer be a place for agriculture, no longer a place for farming. They will be a place for nomads and shepherds. And... Um, it, is, it is no coincidence that at the nativity, when people come to see the Christ child, there are no farmers. There are travelers and shepherds. Um, and cows and sheep. And cows and sheep. And a donkey. Uh, yeah, we talked about the ox and the donkey all the way back in chapter 1. Yeah. The donkeys, yeah, has always been there from the beginning. In verse 21 and 22, now that doesn't sound bad, whereas everything else is bad. Is that supposed to be bad? The it's just like the coming, it's like, it's, this is still talking about the coming of Emmanuel. It's both. Okay. It is, um, it's only one that's yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird mix. It's the end of the old world and the start of the new. So, yeah, it, it is a, it's a, it's the great and terrible day of the Lord. So it's, it's interesting yeah. when, you know, when they return from the, from the captivity of Babylonian captivity and try to rebuild. But they are coming into a land that's that looks like this, described like this. Mm-hmm. So they're having to grapple now. Yeah, with thorns and thistles and you know, it's a, almost a barren land. Mm-hmm. It's almost of no value. Yeah. There's an interesting thing just happened to watch the movie Exodus about the Jews coming in, getting their land back after the war. It's an incredible film. But there's one point where they you know they're they're given a certain amount of territory that's theirs and you look down and it's like a it's like a it's a desert. And he is talking to this woman and he says, Look down here. You imagine this thing water. Palestinians had it, it was just a desert, it was nothing, and they're going to come in and change it, you know, they're come in and make it, make it beautiful. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know. Of course, if we uh, exercise our anagogical interpretation skills here, um, yes. <laughs> and don't look at the land as being actually land, uh, the blessing is for those who remain in the land, but then they describe the land as being this barren waste, 
so it's not really land. We know from Hebrews the rest of the land was really a foreshadowing of rest in Christ. Yeah. So we find that our relationship with Christ is either going to be a, a land of milk and honey, or it's going to be a land of briars and thistles. Yeah. Well, and and to get back to the, you know, the 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 strange mix of hope and and ruin. Mm-hmm. Christ being born of a virgin is not an arbitrary thing, right? That's the seed coming out of a barren land, right? This this stuff doesn't happen by accident. Like, it's like resurrection. It's like resurrection. Alive, yeah. Alive person coming from somewhere he shouldn't be coming. Right. So so there is this. I mean, yes, the land is barren, but that's leading up to a miracle. Mm-hmm. That's leading up to a yeah. That's that is so that God can do something that has never been done before, right? So. You yeah. can't put new wine in old skins, wine skins. And, uh, yeah. That's why, it's, that's why it has to be new every morning. The old world has to yeah, has yeah. To, to go. Um, Killed yesterday and be born again today. This, this chapter number, like so many in the Bible, is... is um, would have been better not being there because this this is just a constant continuation. Yeah. There's really no, um, there shouldn't be a break in the midst of this because this is continuing the sign of Emmanuel. Um, God gives this sign in chapter seven and he's just still talking about it. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters. Belonging to, I'm not going to try to say this. I'll tell you what it means. It means the, yeah, yeah, that's, that's his nickname. Um, it means, it means uh, the prey runs fast. The prey, yeah. Um, think like, think a, think like a, a gazelle running for its life. Think, yeah. Um. And I went, okay, uh, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name, and this is that person. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. There is an interpretation, and I don't know if I agree with this or not. I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of it. Um, but there, you know how oftentimes in biblical prophecy, something happens at this time, but it's not the full fulfillment, still leading up to you know, the greater thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so there is an interpretation that for King Ahaz, the birth of this child, Isaiah's son, is sort of his fulfillment of this. And this is the strange son that marks something new. Um, while it's still pointing towards Emmanuel. I don't know if I buy that, but that, I'm just throwing that out there that some people interpret it this way. Um, I think Walton mentioned that last week too. But um, He's but, not here to defend himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read a book, and actually, we've got it back there cataloged in the library where someone makes a similar argument, but about 
Cain and Eve's perspective that this curse upon the serpent and the bruising the heel and the head, that he made the argument that in Hebrew it suggests that Eve understood Cain to be that promised son. Right. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but at the same time, it, it's a similar early and then later fulfillment. Well, in that case, in that case, Eve was very wrong. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. It's a great illustration of everybody. Yeah. You know, God promises something, yeah. and we want it right now. Yeah. Well, no way. It's it's actually going to be four thousand years from now. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. or give or take yeah. a millennium. Yeah. Uh, Which is only four days. But but Cain believes that. I mean, here's that's what his name means. I have a man, the Lord. Yeah. The Lord. So he grows up here, and doesn't he believes it? Yeah. Yeah. And he serves yeah. sure he I do. I do buy that. I do buy that. Eve thought at first that Cain was the son of promise. I do buy that. Um, but time will tell, and time told that uh, that was not, yeah. not not correct. Yeah. Turns out that sin was at his door. Yeah. Um, well, I think maybe what's trying to be said here is every every person born has the potential to be a child of promise. Well, I mean, every child is every child is a seed. So whatever you know. So yeah. you know, I mean, you know, things come in and make you make choices that go in the wrong direction. You know, so you know, I mean, we're given a, we're given yeah. an opportunity to make choices, and then we have to be responsible for them. And um, you know, all of us have been faced with a, a choice, and we've made we know we've made the wrong choice. In a sense, that's true. I mean, a, a child is sort of the future. Blank slate. In in well, not just a blank slate. It's the future, in in sort of a compressed form. It's a seed. A child is a seed. Um, this is why child sacrifice is so terrible, right? It's because it's not just it's not just murder. It's worse than murder. You're killing the future, right? It's worse than it's worse than murder. Um, if something can be worse than murder, you're killing your future. It, it's yeah, it's the it's the future in a compressed form, and you know, and we're we're definitely not beyond that. I mean, child sacrifice is still going on to this day. Um, that is what that is what ninety nine percent of the time abortion is. It's a sacrifice of the future for the present. Right. That is that is what abortion is. It's the it's the same thing as child sacrifice in in ancient times. This stuff just changes form. It doesn't go away. So, in a sense, you're, you're correct. This is the ultimate child of the ultimate future, <laughs> containing the entirety of all of new creation, right? So, this is a step up from just any child being born, which is why I'm a little skeptical that this is any sort of fulfillment of the coming of Emmanuel, because this child isn't even named Emmanuel. He's named something else. Um, the Lord spoke to me again. I'm in verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Those are the kings that are conspiring. Remember, we read about that in chapter uh, seven. Uh, it's the king of uh, the northern kingdom and the king of Syria that are conspiring to betray the southern kingdom. Uh, because... These people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, 
the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Um, this is a hard teaching, but it's true throughout the scriptures that as the kingdoms rise and fall, the nations rage, we're going to be reading Psalm 2 this morning. Um, in the midst of all of that, behind the scenes, it's, it's God at work. God is the one doing this. Now, we talked about this last week, that, that the reason Assyria takes out the northern kingdom is because the southern kingdom uh, responded to betrayal with betrayal. They saw the northern kingdom conspiring with Syria, so they said, well, we'll get Assyria to fight for us and we'll take out the northern kingdom. It's, it's an eye for an eye. Um, but this says that it's God doing it. And this is a hard teaching. Because we have, we, have, we have wars and rumors of wars going on to this day. We have Ukraine and Russia. Can we say that somehow, some way, this is God at work? I don't know if we can say that we see it, but we can acknowledge by faith that God is in charge of everything that's happening. Um, yeah. Christianity is going to come in and it's going to sweep like a flood Judaism out of the way. It's going to be no longer no longer even valid. It's going to be gone. Everything that you sunk your life into is going to be swept away in one event. And God's going to do a whole new thing. So, uh, yeah, it's Emmanuel. The passing of the old world. But it's started away by fulfilling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I know. So, well, so there, there's a great, uh, Madeline Engel writes about this, about the, the destructive constructiveness of God. Mm-hmm. That he destroys and destructs in order to construct. You know? And that's what you have to do in a sense. You come into a place, you know, where you've done anything in... in you know, in construction, you know you got to clear it off. You got to clean. You got to whatever's in the way. You got to get rid of it because you can't just add on to it. You know, eventually you just have to tear it all down and start all over. We're we're supposed to we're supposed to uh, be thinking about the Red Sea deliverance with this passage because, as we have said time and time again in this study, this is Isaiah is about the new Exodus, the new Red Sea deliverance, right? And so. Um, this, this river that comes rushing in and floods the land and um, takes out the enemies of God's people. Um, that's the Red Sea all over again. Um, be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Again, strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For, literally in Hebrew, Emmanuel. 
the conspiring of the nations and the wisdom of the wise comes to nothing for Emmanuel. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about that. Do y'all have anything? Anything? I've got a couple of footnotes just on yeah. verse nine here. Be broken to be also translated as be evil, and then shattered, be dismayed. So I almost feel like it's a, it'd be a it's this aspect of speaking against the evil of maybe these alliances or whatever else is going on here. I, I just, I don't know. So be evil, you peoples, and be dismayed. I mean, it, it, it almost stresses the judgment aspect. Well, calamity, calamity in Scripture is the same word for either evil or sin. I don't remember in Hebrew. Um, you know, and, and God, and God, um, Restore Job for all of the, whatever that word is, either calamity or evil yeah. that have been brought upon him. Um, I have to look. I think yeah. What verse are we are we looking at? Verse nine. My translation had begins with "Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces." And then that that phrase "broken in be broken in pieces" appears two more times mm-hmm. just in that verse. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty strong yeah. message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be, be dismayed. Yeah. That's, that's like that's that's I, to me that's a stronger word. That not only you're defeated, but you're also uh, helpless. You know, you have no hope. Yeah. Well, plus, if you think you look at Judaism today, it's one of the pieces like crazy. You know, it's all kind of different Jews out there. <laughs> so, some that don't believe anything, some that yeah. you know believe they're, they're sacrificing chickens. You know, so, think of the church today. I know it. I mean. We ain't doing no better. Well, it's been there since the beginning. I mean, even um, it was said like you know they were took pride in the fact that they were Jewish. Not to so it, uh, I can't remember where it is, but it talks about um, uh, God could make uh, sons of Abraham out of these rocks. Yeah. yeah, what's not important is is not your lineage; it's who you're following. And that's, I think that that can even be the problem with some Christians now. It's like, they say, well, I, I said the prayer, so I'm okay. You know, and may or may not be sealed, but um, we can be dismayed by sin, even though that we are in the heart of God and written in the book. That's why a lot of Christians have problems, because they start to say, well, I'm okay. You know, I'm a Christian. But, you know, this, this something about a continued refreshing that's needed to deal with the world that we're still in, you know. It's interesting this revival is going on at Asbury Stars at a Christian university where you have so-called Christian kids down at the altar repenting. Yeah, I understand that start because one guy just started, just stood up and started repenting. Stayed afterwards and started repenting. Other people came down and we started repenting. And you're talking about these are probably 
kids, much like kids at Union. They come from great families and everything seems good. And, you know, they, they've, had, they've been brought up and As long as it remains in uh, perspective, I mean, it could easily be they start treating this place like the Holy Land. Oh, sure. And it's not the event. It's not the people. It's not what happened there. It's who they were following, you know? President there seems quite wise since they're moving it off campus right now. So, so. Well, and they've been kind of careful to try to try not to get like, actual media. Considered in humility, so I mean that's that's the, that's the goal. I mean they're trying to do it right. I mean it's never some, something's always going to be wrong. <laughs> so I mean and you got people involved. <laughs> because an event like that can happen in each individual heart and should happen in each individual heart. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. I'll just keep reading for now. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they're hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Um. In the story of the ten plagues, one of the last things that happens is that Egypt is thrust into darkness. And it says it's a darkness that's so thick you can, you can feel it, you can touch it. Like that's how thick the darkness is. And so that's what this is talking about. This is a, this is a it's almost a return to uh, uh, darkness before creation. It's, a, it's, a, it's an undoing of the old world. Um, before, before the creation of the new. It's the same darkness that came upon the land at the crucifixion. Um, all right, so I want to focus for just a minute on verse 19. Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Um, how much of this do I want to read? 
Isaiah's ministry was in part during the days of King Hezekiah. His son Manasseh sacrificed his son as an offering to the necromancers. That's in 2 Kings 21, if you care to read about it. This is the same thing as King Ahaz. We talked about Ahaz last week. It was said that in mixing his religious heritage with that of the nations that he did more evil than them. That's also in 2 Kings 21. Why does necromancy necessarily involve sacrificing one's son? It's because where you consult for guidance is where you entrust your future. A child, and especially a son, we already said this earlier, is the future incarnate, compressed, a seed. Son sacrifices as old as time for a reason. It touches the mystery. This is a hard teaching. Listen carefully. Son sacrifice is as old as time for a reason. It touches the mystery of Christ's sacrifice and the inheritance of God's children from the foundation of the world. Sacrifice is the rhythm of creation and renewal. It's simply how reality works. King Manasseh sacrifices his male child to the necromancers because that's what consulting for guidance demands, whether to Yahweh or to false prophet. A male child must die. It was the same in Egypt, first at Pharaoh's bidding, then at Yahweh's. Yahweh was not lying when he demanded a child sacrifice from Abraham. There must be a male child sacrifice in order to inaugurate any exodus. Lest anyone reading Isaiah miss the connection between consulting the dead in the first exodus, Isaiah promises thick darkness over the land, the gloom before the presence of the destroyer. From Jeremiah 6.26, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. The destroyer was the angel of death. That was what he was called in the Exodus story. Just as the first Exodus required a male child sacrifice, so the new Exodus requires a male child sacrifice. He will be the end and the ruin of human reason. From chapter 8, verse 10, Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. For Emmanuel, he will be a stumbling stone from what we just read, 8, 14 through 15, for any who cannot abide such a sacrifice. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that only those who do not stumble over this offensive stone will be able to be led out of Egypt's darkness. They who do not stumble over the stone will be led in the new exodus, which is the inverse and the answer to exile. They are the ones who marvel at the stone. In Psalm 118, 22 through 23, we read, these, we read this every Palm Sunday. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So we marvel at this stone, hearing the echo and fulfillment of Isaiah's riddle. And at this point, would someone look up Luke 24, verse 5? This is the rolling of a stone. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Yeah, this is the answer to Isaiah's riddle. Why do you seek the... the um, why do you, how does he say it? Why do you consult? Let me hang on a second. I don't want to get it wrong. Why do you inquire of the dead? Why do you inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Um, yeah, this is the answer. Necromancy is the, is the false worship and the false pursuit that demands a child sacrifice 
um, it's, a, it's, it's a false version of the resurrection miracle. It's the sacrifice of a son. And then there's your answer. He's alive. He's not dead. They take Abraham's march to the mountain with his son, literally, and so they want to finish it off. Instead of hearing the boy saying, yeah. You know how beautiful uh, Eve thought she had the Lord in, in the birth of the first child here, but she was wrong. But she was believing that yeah. the child was coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David just mentioned Abraham as he saw in the figure as the angel came, told, told your sower, do not do it. He knew God would provide. Yeah. But look at the uh, genealogy of Christ through all the generations here. And it still goes and it goes and it goes until Joseph and Mary and then the incarnation. But for the believer, it's by faith we believe this. And the false prophets and false sacrifices and all these things that maybe we can't explain, but God is sovereign in salvation. He prepared it before the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. As Craig even teaches in some of his books, uh, it's there, the church, the remnant. And... Uh, we pray because we believe our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But some are not appointed to salvation. Some are appointed to destruction, according to chapter 9 of the Romans. Can't explain it. I'm proof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you talk about the eternality of this this thing about sacrificing the Son. Christ crucified before the foundation yes. of the world. Yes. All of creation was put in place for the sake of a human sacrifice. Mm -hmm for the sake of sacrificing the son. So every other human sacrifice steals that exclusive right. It's a mockery. It's a mockery, yes. Uh, yes, and we are to sacrifice ourselves. That's, yes. In as well, much as yeah. we are in Christ. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so yeah, yes, that is true. Yes, the ultimate sacrifice is Christ, but we are somehow caught up in that. To be, so. to, to be conformed to the image of Christ yeah. means mm -hmm. to take on his humility. Mm -hmm. as his image as he walked on earth. Yeah. And then later on, we'll take, his, take on his image and glory. Well, I mean, that's wrapped up in what it means to be a child of God. You know, we, we talk about being a child of God like it's just a happy thing. It means that you have to suffer with him. To be a child of God means you have to be. Yes, you have to. You have to take part in the sacrifice. Yeah. He smells like roses. Yeah. I want to know God in the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship of His suffering. So that's how I want to know God. Yeah. I'm glad that He puts the power of the resurrection before fellowship of suffering. So if we didn't have that. I don't think we could handle the other. Yeah. So Amen. We could only yeah. handle suffering because of the, uh, the, the crucifixion of Christ. So. That's a good place to stop. Um, thank you all for your attention. These past few weeks, uh, Walton will be back for um, Chapter 9. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.